and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna, and I am really excited about the episode today. Um, this talk really brought me back to some movies that I've seen throughout the years, like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Back to the Future, Looper, Groundhog Day, The Lake House... I think it was The Lake House with Keanu Reeves. You guys might remember that one. Um, So really cool, interesting topic of conversation today. But before we get to that, I would like to remind you that we have opportunities for you or maybe a family member or a friend or someone that you know that is in the health and wellness business. Maybe it's somebody that owns a yoga studio or somebody that is planning a great retreat out in Hawaii or maybe to Africa and it's all about health and wellness and they are looking to really reach people all across the world because we have listeners from all over the world, which is so cool. I love that. I love going on, taking a look at the stats and seeing where our listeners are from and seeing the whole map of the world light up. That's so great. It's a little... uh crazy to think about that all of you are tuning in wild. But anyway, um, if you have maybe a training or a workshop that's going on and you are looking to draw more people from all around the world, why don't you email me at april at path11productions.com and let's talk. Um, Let's see how we can have a win-win relationship with promoting what you're doing and in turn, you can help us and become a sponsor. There's also ways for people maybe who are not in that line of business, but you just love the content that we are bringing to you. You enjoy listening to it for free and you would like to give back and you can do so by going to the path11podcast.com and clicking on the orange button on the right hand side and that will take you to our patreon site and you can donate anywhere from a dollar up to 25 dollars we have kickbacks if you do so check it out see what we have there and i would really hope that you would consider sponsoring us okay so now let me introduce you to our guest So today I am joined with the guest, Cynthia Sue Larson, the quantum optimist. She is the best-selling author of Quantum Jumps, Reality Shifts, High Ener- and High Energy Money. And today we're going to be talking about her most recent book, Quantum Jumps. She is an intuitive spiritual life coach who helps people find love, meaning, and prosperity by accessing worlds of possibility. Cynthia has a degree in physics from UC Berkeley, an MB. A degree, a doctor of divinity, and a black belt in Cynthia, help me with this. Kuk Solwan. <laughs> that was great. That was it. You got it. All right. All right. Uh, Cynthia also hosts Living the Quantum Dream on the Dream Vision 7 radio network and has been featured in numerous shows, including Gaia TV, The History Channel, Coast to Coast AM, One World with Deepak Chopra, and BBC. Cynthia's latest book, Quantum Jumps, describes the science of instantaneous transformation emerging from the convergence of recent research findings in physics, biology, and psychology. Cynthia is going to remind us today that we ask in every situation, how good can it get? So welcome, Cynthia. Uh, Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm glad you're here, too, because I'll tell you, after I read your book and I was on your website and reading your blog and all this stuff, I had so many questions. So I am hoping I can get them all in in this hour. And I found myself as I'm reading your book and stuff on your website saying, no way. Oh, my God. You got get out of here. You got to be kidding me. Is this stuff really true? I mean, blown away. And so... I'm kind of thinking like, gosh, where do we even begin? But um, maybe you can begin by giving our audience just a little bit of your background and how all of these books have kind of come into reality and come to be and bring us up to the current date of quantum jumps. Okay, I'll try to keep it short, too. Okay. <laughs> Reader's Digest version. Right, so basically, I've been witnessing what I would now call mind-matter interaction since I was a child. This is clearly not the mainstream perspective in 1960s California, where I grew up, but nonetheless, I was witnessing things such as stopping and starting rain um, when I was thinking about it. It wasn't something I could really show people. I noticed that. So I, I want people to understand that um, I had. So I'm a little bit different, and I know that. So I, I, I came into the world remembering what a little bit of what it was like before I was born. That's unusual. I know that, um, but it gives me a perspective of being pure consciousness. I believe that is actually 
something that makes these reality shifts uh, more observable. Uh, I did get a physics degree from UC Berkeley in 1982 because I wanted to get closer to the true nature of reality. I've since heard from one of my favorite professors there, Dr. George Trilling, who wrote to me a few years ago and congratulated me on my achievements with my books and work and so forth. And basically what that is, is I started looking for reality shifts starting in 1994 when I experienced a surge in reality shifts after I'd had a kundalini awakening. So this is too much to explain everything, but long story short, it's just a feeling of waking up even when one is awake and recognizing that there's a deeper level of reality and just feeling energy surge through my body. So the sort of weird stuff I saw, which I'm, I don't know which ones you saw, but um, there's a lot of weird stuff, <laughs> like seeing a dead cat alive again, uh, people alive that had definitely died before, uh, bird feeder changing with no one touching it, a book that I read every night to my daughter suddenly having a completely different illustration inside, conversations remembered differently, person's name vanishing off a conference speaker's list in a matter of minutes while I'm in the room. I just look up, look down, the paper has changed, the program has changed, you know, those kind of things. Um, so uh, what happened after all that started happening, five years after these 1994 experiences, I did start a website. Uh, actually, it was more like 1998, but then... Uh, toward the end of that year. And then I've been publishing a monthly newsletter ever since, basically sharing stories from around the world, showing it's not just here in California, and it didn't just start since the Large Hadron Collider started. So, so there are conspiracy theorists that talk about this Mandela effect, and they think it's brand new. Uh, my research shows these effects go back thousands of years. So I've harnessed my background in physics to take a deeper look at the quantum nature of reality. And that's what I believe is going on. I believe we're literally witnessing, or some of us more than others, macroscopic quantum changes in our daily life. Well, thank you for that. And I was just introduced actually by Mike, who's on the other line, um, listening in, making sure our audio sounds great. But we were talking last year about the Mandala effect, and I had never heard of this before. And, you know, he was talking about uh, the Berenstein Bears. You know, we kind of grew up with the Berenstein Bears. And how do we remember the title of that? Um, the Monopoly guy and whether or not he wore the glass over his eye. And Mike started telling me all these things. And I'm like, what are you talking about? This is wild. No, I remember it this way. And he's like, no, no, look, look. So, um, and I was, you know, I've been researching a lot of this stuff on consciousness and physics and, um, you know, virtual realities, alternate realities. And I had never heard of this before. Um, so can you explain to our listeners in case they haven't heard of it either? What is that Mandela effect? Okay. The term Mandela effect came to be from the witnessing from some people uh, during, I think it was the year 2010. There was a blogger named Fiona Broom, and she was talking with people who were at a conference with her. And these started sort of spontaneously discussing the fact that a lot of them remembered that Nelson Mandela had died while he was incarcerated. He was in jail in South Africa. And they were surprised that he was alive at the time and was um, had not died many, many, many years earlier. And so that was where I think through the website Reddit, it really caught fire and people started sharing thanks to the internet and the uh, advantage of anonymity through Reddit, these kinds of experiences. Because up until that point, even when people wrote to me with their experiences on Reality Shifters, there's a lot of embarrassment sometimes when people have high-level jobs. I've, I've heard from people in the Pentagon, high-level uh, members of all, all walks of life, uh, everything from airline pilots to um, lawyers, doctors, everything. Uh, but these Mandela effects are now becoming better known, I believe, thanks to the Internet and people's ability to uh, share these experiences without feeling any sense of personal embarrassment that uh, that they're just either crazy or misobserving things or that things are a bit uh, weird. So the examples you mentioned, the Berenstain Bears here in the United States, that's a huge one. Not so big overseas, but it's something that people in America really tune into. 
because they'll notice the spelling of that popular children's book. And since this is a podcast, it's perfect. So listeners can just decide how they think the spelling should be for Berenstain Bears if they're in the United States. And then take a look at what the official version is right now, according to our official version of history currently. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the very strong possibility that if you're an American, you may have just now noticed, like, oh, my gosh, what is that? <laughs> that's not how you spell Berenstain Bears. And so, <laughs> yeah, I always thought it was kind of weird that these vaguely Jewish bears, Berenstain, you know, I was wondering, should you pronounce it Stein or, you know, what's the correct pronunciation when you're a kid and you start learning about different spellings? But now it's stain, and, you know, obviously that would be like berry stains on your paws if you went to the berry patch. So that's, this is an example of history literally changing. We are talking about absolutely physical changes occurring. So when something like this happens, the only proof that anything was ever the way you remember it likely would be other people like yourself who might have contributed to what's sometimes called uh, reality residue. That's just a catchphrase, but it means that someone's painted a picture or sketched a drawing or taken, um, you know, they, they've done something with their own memory to create something to that, that goes in accordance with your memories, too. Great. And so, but you're saying, too, that, like, this isn't anything new. This can really be explained in physics. Well, that's what I've been working to do is to explain it with physics. And I am actually involved with a lot of physicists. I'm good friends with several, uh, like Fred Allen Wolf from What the Bleep Do We Know? He's a good friend. And so is physicist Henry Stapp and George Weissman and just a whole bunch more than I, I don't want to be a, long, a list of who's who. I, I know lots of these hippies who changed physics and, you know, they, they basically saved the world. <laughs> they Anyway, but, but to get to the back on track, yes, there's definitely a, a physics explanation in terms of recognizing that some of the things we consider normal at the quantum scale, and we a lot of people used to think it was like Las Vegas. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, and what happens on the quantum scale below a certain size, the Planck scale, um, then it's just happening down there, and we can ignore it. And that's been um, pretty much the consensus view the entire time since quantum physics came into being around 1900. But uh, what I'm suggesting is that instead of the quantum physics happening only down there at the very small scale, we're literally witnessing uh, things like superposition of states that you expect to only to see in the so-called quantum scale, things like entanglement, teleportation, and even coherence. So these are big physics words, but they're simple ideas that everyone understands, really. And then, and then of course, there's an accusation that we're oversimplifying it. Um, but for superposition, that just means in the quantum realm, it's not to me, it's not the quantum realm. It's the whole, it's everything. Uh, but if you look at, a, for example, a photon or an electron, these are quantum particles. Notice they're very small. So usually you don't, see them with the naked eye, although you can see a single photon. And then what we're talking about is that these quantum particles are capable and frequently um, demonstrate their ability to be uh, in many different states at once. And this is, uh, it, it's, it's hard to explain just with the kind of regular physics that most people have studied in high school, unless they got into quantum physics at all. And because it seems bizarre that, that something can be smeared out in a probability wave, and then only when you happen to take a look in a certain way and make a measurement does that particle show up. And it, it seems to indicate that it's much more acting like pure energy than it is matter that we're used to. And so this is the sort of thing that I'm saying is happening in everyday reality from time to time that we're literally witnessing discontinu discontinuities, basically, where we might say uh, and observe that we've, it's kind of like you feel like you've walked into another world. And I'm saying that this is happening quite a lot, and it's not just one or two worlds. Some people think, well, I'm in the world with Berenstain and you're from Berenstain. But, but in my research and the 20 years I've been looking into this, it looks like it's much, much more, uh, many, many, many more possibilities than that. Yeah. And so um, 
going forward with that. So define for our listeners kind of what is this quantum jump then? Because when I was reading the book, even though it may feel like um, it's, it's very hard to like notice when it's happening. You say that these shifts can be very, very subtle. They can actually happen every day in some way, shape or form. Um, but there's a subtleness to it with, right. with, with some, some or most of it, I guess maybe the teleportation might be a little less subtle. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, but maybe you can describe, you know, what do you mean by a quantum jump and how do people do that? Okay, well, basically, the, my uh, explanation of how you and why you might want to do a quantum jump, it, it does start by the assertion that you're alluding to, where I state that basically every decision we make is a quantum jump to another reality. And most of us notice this in a very down-to-earth way, those times when you, you know what you're doing. You're going to walk down the hall of your house and go get something. But somehow, when you're walking down that hallway past all those doors, Often it's easy to forget what you were looking for. And I'm just using this as a typical experience that everybody has. And you might not think there's anything extraordinary. And what I'm suggesting is that um, you're actually going through the steps of how to make a quantum jump when you do that. And that's probably why you might feel like you're in another reality. If you think about it, you might feel like, yeah. Um, but the basic steps of a quantum jump and like I said, every decision is a, can be a quantum jump, and we often just think it's normal. But you usually start by going into sort of a daydream state, a theta brainwave state of mind. And so daydreaming, meditation, lucid dreaming, and happening to be a near-death experiencer or any kind of spiritual epiphany experiencer is a benefit here because your neurons are wired a little differently, you can more easily, more readily go into that daydream state. So getting relaxed and energized is step one. Step two is really feeling a sense of all possibility being around you. Often we put blinders over our eyes and we think we only have one choice. Step two is an awareness that you've got so many more choices open to you than you ever realized. And they are possible when you're in a state of purity of being, that pure consciousness. And step three is just acting as if you're in that new reality. This is why we often don't notice it's happening. But just like breathing can be something that gives you the greatest power in your life, lengthens your telomeres, it expands your hippocampus and all that. And that's just breathing we're talking about. Um, the simple process of quantum jumping can be just as powerful. Now, as I was reading this and, and recognizing the steps that you just mentioned, it reminded me a lot of the teachings of law of attraction, um, where, you know, you can hold the thought in your mind and you can, you know, in trying to manifest, basically what we're trying to manifest with law of attraction is a different reality. And it's some of the same steps. And the most important one that I've always heard them say is to act as if what it is that you are wanting to manifest has already happened. Right. And that's kind of like the step three of what of what you talked about. So is is this just another, um, you know, word or term to use for law of attraction? Well, if that helps people feel more comfortable with it, that's great. I actually believe there's a subtle difference here. And I'm, thank you for mentioning this whole thing of acting as if. And I'd like to credit American psychologist William James with having been the first to introduce this approach, basically to act as if. He's the one that brought it into being. He's also bizarrely the coiner of the term multiverse. He actually came up with that word before the physicists did. So absolutely William James was, you know, he was clued into something there. So and uh, the, the difference that I'm noticing with law of attraction and quantum jumping is that people with law of attraction, you can just look at the name law of attraction. Um, basically, because of my interest in physics, I prefer to look for principles, which are much more of the along the lines of the philosopher Leibniz, where we look for things like elegance and simplicity and complexity to determine which kinds of uh, 
interpretations of quantum physics are the best and so forth. So laws uh, is kind of a clunky term if you happen to get into sciences, typically. And then the attraction business, that makes it sound like you are one of your physical selves and all the other ones might be wrong or you're pulling them to you. What I'm suggesting is that our true nature is not so much our physical body at all. Our true nature is basically, like like I said earlier, it would be more along the lines of pure energy. And I think when you get deep into law of attraction, they'll say something similar to that. Uh, but the name of it can be misleading. And, and then the similarities, I, I think, continue a little bit into uh, being an observer, noticing the energy state that you're in, and not just being a puppet in your life, but rather recognizing that as an operating observer, you have the ability to literally change what you're looking at. And I think the the highest level practitioners of law of attraction are absolutely doing that. Yeah, and my other question too, with step one, the mind going into the theta state with these quantum jumping, um, and is that really one of the keys that we really have to get the brain waves into a certain state in order to be able to shift within these different realities? Like, we're, are we not able to do it when we're in alpha? Yeah, and there's a physics reason for that, I believe, too, which is something called the quantum Zeno effect, sort of like the watched pot never boils. And uh, some, th this is an effect where if you're consciously check, 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 checking, like you're kind of OCD, it's kind of like, okay, this is, you know, I'm going to keep tapping on the table here, and okay, it's still a table, still a table, still a table, tap, 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 tap. Um, the more you do that, uh, you're kind of locking that reality in. And so you, you need to get into kind of like that daydream state. You need to loosen up your, your, your grip on that particular physical world, shall we say, that particular physical existence within that infinite range of possible realities, that smear of that probability wave uh, smear that I was talking about earlier, where it's pure energy. And the best way to do it is to get into a daydream state, that theta wave state. Uh, let go of your tendency to firmly grip onto feeling like you're missing something or you need something. You have to let go of that in order to get to the reality where it exists. Yeah, and I've you know heard so many people say like when they stop trying, then stuff starts to happen. You know, and what you're saying reminds me of that. You know, and like they're trying to either connect with a deceased loved one in meditation, or they're trying so hard to meditate or get in that relaxed state, and then when they just like let go, they're not trying as hard. Then the magic seems to take place. Yes, that's exactly right, and I think that's often the hard thing for Americans to do, and people in the West in general. There's that emphasis on action and just always doing things. And so that's the mindfulness revolution that's happening has been good in the sense that it's helping people learn to relax. Now, with your three steps, um, you know, about kind of getting into that relaxed state, having that open mind, getting into the theta waves, you know, step two, the awareness, and then seeing yourself as if you are in your new reality. Now, I have an example that I want to give you because, and it could be that I am just sometimes really stuck uh, in form, but um, when I'm trying to apply these principles, my example would be right now I live in a in one bedroom apartment. It's a great place, a great community, but really my dream or my alternate reality of where I would like to imagine another part of me is, is in a beautiful, large log cabin with cathedral ceilings out in the country fireplace. I mean, I could picture the house, right? I dream of this house. I think about this house all the time, but I still wake up in my one bedroom apartment. <laughs> so is there, and I also feel like some examples that you give that you have to also take some action to put towards some of this imagination, um, and these realities that you're dreaming and thinking about. So part of my question is, if I think enough about this log cabin, are you saying that eventually I will be Begin to create a new reality that will bring some experiences in order for that to be able to manifest? Or is that reality actually simultaneously happening right now? And there is a part of me that is in this beautiful home and log cabin and living this luxurious life out in the country. Yeah, this is where I'd say probably there is a version of you that's out there. And I, I would never have said this before people started noticing that when I would daydream, they would see me bilocating. And to me, that suddenly starts giving credence to this uh, this 
very real reality that, like you, we talked earlier, jokingly, that people can teleport. That's a big deal. But sometimes when I've, you know, when I bilocate, I, I just think I'm daydreaming from the part of me that remembers what happened. I think I'm daydreaming that I've woken up in the cold morning and walked down the hall, daydreaming that I opened my daughter's bedroom window and so forth, daydreaming that I turned on the lights, asked them to wake up. And I'm thinking, okay, now I really should wake up. But I hear their little pitter-patter of feet running down the hall. And then they ask me, Mommy, why are you still in bed? And then I go to their room and notice the light switched on and the curtain that they can't lift has been opened and there's nobody else in the house. So, um, so yeah, now I'm of the, the, I didn't used to be of this. Um, <laughs> it sounds crazy, but I would say, yes, there is a version of you that's already there. And so when you're asking how to do, I think your unspoken question, or maybe you said it, is how do you get there? If right. You, if you re- yeah. And here we go. Americans and Westerners in general have a kind of split going on. And this is where the kind of coaching I do comes in handy because I can work one-on-one with people. Usually it's an individual thing. But if you look at a snowman, right now it's the winter in the Northern Hemisphere. We've had a pretty intense one, a lot of snow. And you look at the typical three circles, one for the head, one for the torso, and then one for the, the lower torso. So it's kind of like three, the big ball at the bottom, the middle one, and then the top one. This is a good model for what I'm about to talk about, because in your head, you feel like you'd love to be in that cabin out in the wilderness. And that's an idea that I'm just, maybe that's not in your head, but for the purpose of example, we'll pretend that's in your head, but your heart might be somewhere else. It might be feeling split or torn, that your your friends, your connections, everybody you know might be in the city where you currently are. And then uh, in order to get the kind of sh- quantum jump for real so you experience it you actually do have to take action and that's the lower part of the snowman and that's the lower energy centers that's that's really where all of our primary energy and force comes from this this is where you can do lower abdominal breathing for example that i alluded to earlier to power yourself up the most fully and this is what martial artists yogi masters Chigung masters, shamans the world over, they all do the same thing. They're breathing to uh, an area below your belly button. And that's, you can think of it in terms of your subconscious. Your subconscious runs the show. So if your subconscious is not ready yet for you to be in that cabin, you're not going to be there because you won't be doing everything it literally takes for you to make those steps, act as if you're there and be there. Um, but the more you live according to your subconscious, and some people are afraid of that uh, because they haven't dealt with their shadow side, um, the, but, it, but the more you do those things, the more you'll experience the reality you're dreaming about. And so it's coming into alignment. Yeah. And you gave also, you know, some other really good examples about that I think a lot of people can relate to, about how you can get over a cold very quickly or manifest that pretty immediately. Um some medical mysteries or medical miracles where all of a sudden there's spontaneous healing from maybe a disease or an illness that somebody should not be living from. Um, Those were other examples that you gave of this quantum jump into a different reality. Yes. And in the book, Quantum Jumps, I start pretty simply just showing things that pretty much anybody can do that might not even seem that miraculous. It might seem like, yeah, we do that all the time. (laughs) And a good one is waking up in the morning and feeling like, wow, I'm tired. I only got five hours sleep, but I, I have to make a go of this. And a lot of people have noticed independently on their own that it's kind of like by accident, but you can just tell yourself, oh, I got a great night's sleep. That was perfect. And what the scientists are noticing is people who only get the four or five hours sleep but tell themselves, I had a great night's sleep, they perform equally well to people. And this would be on cognitive tests, action tests, all sorts of like a battery of exams, the kind of things they do for military personnel to show that they're still fully functional after such a short time sleeping or doctors and that sort of thing. Um, So it's just it's extremely powerful. You can go into the daydream state, just tell yourself, I got a great night's sleep, and your performance will be uh, just the same as someone who did get a good night's sleep. So this might be a nice segue into the part of your book where you talk about the placebo effect. 
where, you know, people are being told that they're, um, you know, that you're taking this medication and there's blind. And also I was interested to read the non-blind where some people will be told that they're actually given a sugar pill and they still get better. Um, so, and like what you're saying is kind of telling yourself that, okay, I'm going to be refreshed. I'm going to go to work. I'm not going to be tired at all. Um, you gave great examples about the placebo effect and how that really is true and, uh, is real. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I love the placebo effect and maybe I should back up and just explain what it is. Cause some people yes. don't know. It's, it's a, it sounds like such a fancy word. What is placebo? And it, the literal meaning of the word is I shall please. It came into being at the time of the world war where the, the doctors had run out of the pain medication they needed for soldiers in the field. And so all they had in their medical bags was a saline solution of salt in water. And the doctors felt pretty bad that that's all they had to offer. But um, the doctors, uh, being who they are, they needed to be able to treat their patients. And these are wounded soldiers who've been serving their country. And so they just thought, okay, well, I just won't say anything. I'll give them the salt water solution and hope for the best. And, in, and actually, in the history of medicine, a, a lot of medicine has been of that nature. And so there was already a long track record for it. What was surprising was that the soldiers that were given the saltwater saline solution very often in, you know, 15, 20, almost 30 percent of the cases would report to the doctor, thank you, I feel so much better. And the doctors at first would sort of raise an eyebrow and not say anything, of course, because they run, they totally run out of their morphine and other things. But, um, but this was the beginning of this placebo concept. And then as pharmaceutical drug companies wanted to bring their products to market, there's now a requirement here in the United States of America that there should be done some studies testing any kind of medical treatment against what's called the placebo. And the placebo used to be the understanding that, well, we're just giving a sugar pill or a salt solution or basically nothing, you know, something that doesn't really do anything, but we'll deliver it along in the same manner, you know, with a doctor wearing a white lab coat, all the trappings of that feeling cared for experience that a person has when they see someone who's we've empowered with that ability to care for us. And as we go through this whole process, then um, there's definitely a remarkable change. And so the fact that placebos work in the first place, and then as you were mentioning, uh, people can even be told, you've just had a placebo. And what's astonishing is that in the last 30 years, there's been a doubling of the efficacy, the power of the placebo. There are now these placebos in America are now twice as powerful as they were back in the 1980s. And even uh, every kind of placebo, whether it's surgery with the sham surgery, whether it's a professor telling students that uh, you're, you've got this, you're going to do fine, or, you, or, or they'll even tell them something that's incorrect, like you're getting the answers uh, broadcast to your subliminal subconscious uh, being flashed on the screen on the computer screens and actually it's just been gibberish but the people that they say you've got the answers that come into your subconscious those students will do tremendously better on those tests and so there's definitely something going on yeah and i i can't um, i'm looking at the pdf copy of your book too because i know i marked it down because i thought that that was interesting where the percentages i think this is what you were talking about too 2000 and 2000 and was it three or 13 that the percentages did go up so what why do you think that is why is the placebo effect getting stronger yeah, that's a good question. I know the thing that's happened that's, to me, uh, a tipping point in the United States of America that's concurrent with that exact jump would be the, uh, we finally hit the tipping point where more than 10% of the United States citizens are meditating regularly. Remember, I mentioned the significance of that meditation, that it gives us the ability to enter that theta state. And when we do, uh, this is where the, the magic really starts happening, where we get to a place of starting to finally uh, witness and almost expect to see because uh, these sorts of miracles, these transformations, these reality shifts and quantum jumps, and they can happen 
from people just feeling that they can't be sick today, just like you can't be tired today. You can tell yourself you're well in that daydreamed, relaxed state of mind um, and feel suddenly that you've got this surge of energy and like suddenly you're getting over the cold that a moment ago you were starting to catch. Yeah, it's kind of when, you know, people will say, I'm, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. You know, you kind of get to that place of having a cold and you're just over it. You know, maybe you needed it to be able to relax. But then when you're ready for it, you're like, OK, this has got to move. Usually people end up getting better. Um, and also with that placebo effect, too, you know, sometimes people, as soon as they make that phone call to the doctor, to that therapist, they automatically begin to feel better because they know that, like, they're on their way to go to something that they perceive is going to be helpful for them. Yes. And I think we've all had that experience when we were little, or hopefully we did, where you've got a caregiver. And for me, it was my mom or my grandmother. And if I fell down or got a boo-boo or something, sometimes there wasn't much available in terms of medicine at that moment. Maybe we're at the park. And so a lot of people are told, you know, kiss it and make it better. Of course, that introduces germs, possibly. But but the idea is there, just that feeling of being cared for. And if you've ever been with a small child, you can see the difference it makes. It just it seems like that's what we mostly need is to feel like, oh, I'm being cared for. And and that's a huge component also of the placebo is people who have faith. And faith gives us that feeling, whatever religious, spiritual faith it might be. Uh, this gives people a sense of being loved, being cared for. And for those people, the, their results with the placebo are off the charts because then it goes well over 70%. It can totally hit the 90% of efficacy for something that completely is a sham, whether it's a sugar pill or just telling yourself, you've got this, you're doing great, you're fine. These affirmations, just uh, they're, they're extraordinary. Yeah, the other thing, you know, in reading your book, too, it reminded me of um, how important and how well hypnotherapy works. Because with, you know, clinical hypnotherapy, we are getting our clients into that theta state and really having them imagine a different reality, whether we're working on somebody's fear, somebody's past trauma. Um, You know, you can use hypnotherapy to go back to past lives and, you know, work to change some of the outcomes so things are more pleasant and not affecting people in this reality. Um, So, you know, when you're saying people that connect to that placebo, how they have really great responses. I've seen that with some of my clients who have uh, underwent some hypnotherapy sessions with me, and they really were in that right state of really wanting that to happen and to believe that to happen. And that is where really magical healing can happen. Yes. And again, it's uh, getting back to that, that snowman model of the different states of ourselves and the subconscious does hold the key. And we see this also with Olympic coaches when they work with athletes, sometimes entire teams like a football or soccer team, sometimes with an individual. But usually it's the same thing, getting people into that relaxed state, which you can absolutely enter through hypnotherapy. And But people can, are now starting to learn to either hypnotize themselves, meditate, get into that very deep theta state of brainwave. And, and from there, uh, this is uh, where it's important if you're an Olympic athlete, you don't picture yourself on the, the podium getting the gold medal instead, because that, that's not really the right thing to do. What you need to do is picture perfect performance. Just visualize yourself doing really well at what it is you're about to do. And so the the I was I'm blown away by some of the Olympics that I watched this winter, just witnessing the snowboarding in particular and these these um, extreme sports that are now part of the Olympics and recognizing you have to really have a lot of um, clarity in what you're doing to, to just have it all pulled together to pull these things off. There's such a level of uh, um, amazing ability being demonstrated there. And so the coaches help the athletes really feel like they're in that. And I think that the best of the coaches probably are doing something like what you're doing, hypnotherapy, because it has to go all the way down to the subconscious. Yeah, my high school basketball coach was actually the first person that ever introduced me to visualization and meditation. And he would make us visualize this black box and put all of our distracting thoughts in there. And then he would just take us through a creative visualization of imagining us, you know, making the baskets, playing great defense. And, you know, we we had a 
really good year that year. He, he was only there for a year, but um, I've had that experience too from an athletic performance perspective. Now, also, I just wanted to mention and have you explain that even though we have the placebo effect, the opposite of that is the nocebo effect and how this can be a little more challenging for science to be able to study and prove because of the ethics of doctors with that do no harm thing. And so can you explain what the nocebo effect is mm-hmm. and how people are studying mm-hmm. that? Yeah, the, the nocebo is something, and I don't usually talk much about it because, like you mentioned at the beginning, I'm more of an optimist. So I like to direct people's attention to how good it can get. And the nocebo, <laughs> yeah, the nocebo is just kind of the dark side of the placebo. If if the placebo is I shall please, then you can think of the nocebo as kind of your darkest fears realized. And again, it's proving that the subconscious is running the show. So if someone is convinced that, um, you know, because some of our beliefs are very ingrained, entrenched, and they can also be um, riffed on. So there are ways to activate, um, you know, it for, <laughs> let's see, I'll just give an example so people know what I'm talking about. I mentioned earlier the sugar pills. They're not supposed to do much or, be, or do very much to one's body because the dosage of the sugar is so small. And it's given in instead of a medical treatment or some kind of actual pharmaceutical. So that way people think they're taking something. They think it's maybe curing their, for example, depression. But they're told as they're taking this actual placebo, it's just a sugar pill. They might be warned as they take the sugar. They don't know it's a sugar pill. They're just given, here's your medication. And... There's a chance that you might notice some side effects, and then the, and this you might think this is mean, but um, then the, doc, the the people in the study will say the side effects could involve, and then they'll say a whole bunch of things, and I don't want to go into all the possible side effects because I don't want to do that to your listeners, um, but you can imagine bad side effects, and then this okay you think okay that's funny nobody's going to have side effects well guess what they do they have the bad side effects right along with the so-called benefits. And you're you're right. We have uh, ethics in America that we should not be doing these studies on people. So it's it's not nice. It's not. I don't even want to say it out loud on the show. So obviously, but it's powerful. And people start embodying. You know, they have these side effects. Like, wow, that was great. That you know, my depression went away. It lifted. But boy, did I get those side effects. I got like three of the six you mentioned. And and for what reason? <laughs> you know, like how did that even happen? Right. Well, I think people learning about the nocebo effect it also really shows the power of our minds and how, you know, not only can we use the power of our thoughts for something very good, but when we get trapped into those negative thought patterns or we are feeling more doom and gloom or, you know, we go to the worst case scenario that that can typically strengthen part of that outcome, just like positive thoughts can strengthen an outcome. That's right. I am a big believer in that, too. And a lot of the things that I share in my book, Quantum Jumps, are just simple exercises that prove to people just how quickly you can suddenly gain perseverance, increase your willpower, your confidence, improve your relationships, all these things, just with something you can that's free and easy. It just takes a few minutes to do. And it's part of acting as if and just moving into that reality. Now, going back to these quantum jumps, and I'd like to talk a little bit maybe about a little bit more about this bilocating and maybe teleportation. One of the things, one of the thoughts that came to mind as I was reading your book, I was thinking about people who spontaneously go missing and there's no trace of them, nowhere to be found, right? So we could have some theories say, well, the aliens came and got them, right? (laughs) Or maybe the government, or maybe, you know, after reading your book, I was thinking, wow, did they just bilocate into another reality? Because when you talk about certain objects that are like right there, and then they're gone, and then they can reappear, is it possible for that to happen with humans to bilocate to a totally different reality yeah and again i if if i hadn't seen as many weird things as i have seen i would say that's ridiculous or that's a little far out there but um there are actually i I have seen a lot of things so clearly i've seen objects teleport and if objects can do that you know obviously people can do that and throughout history as i mentioned in my book there have been several documented cases of this kind of teleportation and i think uh 
there's one example I mentioned that was to me quite extraordinary. This happened more than 400 years ago, but it was so striking an, an event that people wrote it down and talked about it at the time. Of course, this is around it's in the 1500s, and there was a gentleman who was on duty working as a palace guard in Manila in the Philippines, and so there he is in the Philippines. He's just heard word that some pirates had killed uh, the governor, Gomez. Um, I forget the last name, but anyway, he closed his eyes because uh, this was affecting him, you know, and it was his people. When he opened his eyes, he was back in Mexico City, where he came from. And that is a distance of thousands of miles. Remember, he was in the Philippines. He's in Manila. So he went from Manila to Mexico City, and he was still wearing the uniform of the guards from there in the Philippines. People questioned him, how did you get here? He had no idea how he got there. And so this was quite an incident. Um, he, he, all, all he could say is, I was just in Manila. And, and like you said, was, <laughs> was it aliens or what? Uh, you know, he didn't remember any aliens or anything. All he knows is he just heard the news, and then there he is. And he said, I just got the news that day. So another another big case of, of teleportation that was quite well documented had to do with a gentleman in Italy, and this is now, it's only about 100 years ago, and he had two sons that would constantly vanish from home. You know, often if you've got kids, they run off, but, but this was different. These kids would actually be so many miles away that it would be quite an a ordeal to go get them again. They'd end up like 30 miles away in a matter of minutes, now, literally, I mean, their only explanation is they're teleported, and these are just little kids, like eight and ten years old, and they get, they'd be notified, like, "Hey, your kids are over here." It was back when the phone telephone had been invented, so they get a phone call, and the, the poor exhausted parents would just be wondering, "How did this keep happening?" And it happened more than once. <laughs> so yeah. yeah this, Gosh, if you could see me right now, all I'm doing is like shaking my head back and forth. Like, I just can't. I can't. I just can't. I can't believe it. But it reminds me of a movie that I loved in my childhood, um, which was Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Keanu Reeves oh, was in it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I forget that. the other guy. Yeah. And, you know, and you're really making me think, too. You know, Keanu Reeves has been in a couple of these movies, like The Lake House was another one. Yes, um, yes, yes. So as I was reading your book, I started thinking about all these different movies that I've watched. And, you know, sometimes you think, oh, well, you know, it's just Hollywood. Oh, that's a great idea. Or, wow, imagine if that could be real. But it is. <laughs> Yeah, it's real. It's real. It's real. So uh, I guess um, one of my biggest takeaways as we begin to um, end our interview here, one of my biggest takeaways is always my personal goal and what I've been trying to do since I got into this uh, work back in 2008 is really just trying to detach from the physical body more and more as I live here, if that makes sense. Because I, I have found that through my own instantaneous out-of-body experiences, through healing sessions that I have with my clients, you know, and traveling to other dimensions, um, that we really are so much more than our physical body. And if I can move each day and become more detached from the physical body, that I feel like this whole world that you're talking about that I have seen glimpses of and experiences of from time to time would probably open up so much greater for me. That's right. Uh, and I also would recommend if people are interested in this and want to try something that's totally safe is just start adopting more positive biases for yourself or about the elderly in particular, uh, because all of us hopefully will be aging and something simple that's been proven to be a good thing to do is just to have a positive viewpoint about aging, that as you get older, it's not like you're all falling apart and getting weak and then everything runs downhill and so forth. Um, people that believe that, that the elderly are active and vibrant and smart and involved and just doing great, uh, those are the people that end up like Betty White, you know, and she, she looks like, she, I don't know how old she is now, but she's got the energy of a 30-year-old. You know, she's incredible. She's just a dynamo. And so when you picture old people as li like Betty White, then what's been proven to be true 
true in longitudinal studies is that the people that have those beliefs actually bounce back from any kind of illness or injury. They tend to live at least seven years longer, uh, much healthier, and actually fitting all the things that they had according to their bias of the elderly. So it makes a huge difference. Yeah. And so if people are interested in contacting you, um, can you tell a little bit about how you work with people individually one-on-one kind of using this knowledge and, you know, working with people to get them to move past their blocks and to become more successful, healthier, wealthier, um, and enjoying life more. So what do you actually do with people? What I typically do is start with meditation before the session even starts. So we'll schedule a session through email. The best way is check out my website, realityshifters.com, and you can contact me through there, through email. And then we'll set up a time to talk via Skype or telephone usually. And in those cases, what I ask is people at least meditate for at least a few minutes before the session starts. I do, too. Anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes beforehand, I'll be doing a a very in-depth meditation uh, for the person. This is before the session starts. So what that does for me is it gives me intuitive insights as to what's going on beneath the surface. And, And then we start the session by sharing what came up in that meditation. And I usually write notes about what that was so that we can talk about it. And because of the what I do is very much like that snowman model. I ask in the meditation that I do, how is the person feeling and what do they need at those levels of their being? And that gives me something in writing that I can share either instantly sending an email or talking about it in the session. And then when the person has their own idea of what they thought they wanted to do, we compare that to what they got in their meditation, what I got in my meditation. And usually what's most necessary is to line things up because with the quantum jumps, the subconscious is totally running the show. This is why hypnotherapy works so well. And what I like to do is help people start recognizing that they are consciousness and start lining up their heads, their hearts, and their guts. Awesome. Well, Cynthia, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm really glad that our paths crossed and you've opened me up to quantum jumping. Since I've been reading, I've been playing a lot. (laughs) Um, So I'm really, really excited to take this hopefully to a different level. And uh, it also gave me even more perspective of how to strengthen some of my sessions as well with my clients. And I've always believed that, um, you know, these steps that you talk about really do work, but it always just reinforces for me, like to keep going and, you know, keep bringing this to people. So thank you so much for your contribution. Oh, you're welcome. I'm so glad to hear that too. That makes me very happy. Thank you so much. If you want more information about our films, visit our website, path11productions.com to purchase DVDs or to rent and stream each film. You can also find our trilogy of films on iTunes, Amazon Prime, and Gaia.com. You can still use our smartphone app for both Android and iPhones. Just search for Path 11 in the Google Play App Store, or if on an iPhone, look for Path 11 in the iOS App Store. Catch you next time.